Oh, I did one with Patrick Deneen. Do you know who that is? Who's that? He wrote a book called Why Liberalism Failed. He's actually a Catholic, but he's oh. a political philosophy professor at Notre Dame. And that book was Come like on, man. pretty big. But he was he was a real cool cool guy to do. It's called do Why – I'm going to write it down. Why yeah. Liberalism Failed. Yeah, it's been translated to 20 different languages. Uh, okay. You know, pretty hardcore critique of the left. But like Obama reviewed it and was positive even though he critiqued Obama in it. And so um, that – He's a real smart guy when it comes to political stuff. He's obviously a Catholic, um, but some of his critiques of liberalism are some of his critiques of Protestantism. So it's it's an interesting crossover um, in that way. So hmm. it's pretty cool. I love yeah. that kind of stuff, man. Oh yeah, I uh, just yeah. I mean, that's what's fun about what you're doing is you get to just dabble in all kinds of stuff. Yeah, the life of the mind is so fun. Yeah, so many cool things to think about. Man, it's crazy because I've been trying to really figure out, and I'll I'll stop after this. We can record, but I've been really trying to figure out what's the Christian's role in government, and yeah. like you have the Patrick Deneen kind of is like, okay, we need to institute like we, we need to have uh have like a Christian vision, a moral ethic on that yeah. upholds everything, and then you have a guy like the guy at Duke. I cannot remember how to say his Stanley last name. Stanley Hauerwas? Yeah, who wrote Resident yeah. Aliens. And yeah. I read Resident Aliens, and I'm like, yeah, I, like, I agree with this in some sense. Like, the, yeah, you, we are aliens, and we're not supposed yeah. like, but I read Deneen's stuff, and it's kind of the opposite take, take so it's like, I'm, yeah. I am I don't know. It's just, that's yeah. a tough one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you've got, like, Stanley Hauerwas's ideas are similar to Rod Dreher's with the Benedict oh. option. You just okay. kind of... Um, yeah, we're thinking about all kinds of that stuff right now, of course, because political theology was one mm. of the things Joe Rigney thought a lot about. Really? So, and the yeah, whole and Christian I, na nationalism yeah. discussion. Yeah, that's a whole big thing right now. And I'm like reading a ton of J.I. Packer. I loved, I'm trying to read all oh, the J.I. Packer's stuff. Good for that's you. my goal good for you. in the next couple of years. And I've, I'm, I'm almost through three of his books. Um, and I love him. Like, I, he's just, so good and he's an anglican and like anglicanism is a like it's a political thing too like the entire church of england it's the church of england yeah. you know and so it's like, an established church yeah yeah and so i'm like and you know they've gone off the rails in certain ways recently too but yeah yeah i i just love jad packer i could i Dude, could read he his stuff is, all day yeah me too and so precise oh yeah and yeah, I, his essay on the penal substitution back from the seventies is one of the best things still I've ever read. Really, it's so, it's so good, and his charitability, like he's so charitable. You know, I'm reading "Keeping in Step with the Spirit," yeah, and yeah. he's not just like bashing charismatics, like these people are idiots. He's like, here's like ten things, we, twelve things we can learn from charismatics. Here's where the theology goes very wrong. But yeah. then he kind of calls out some of the non-charismatics as like, look, if but if you guys had half of what they had in their desire to be more to, filled with the spirit, you would be better off. And I think that, you know, it's hard to find people who are charitable because people are scared of being charitable nowadays because then they'll be labeled as the thing that they're being charitable towards. And they're like, no, I'm I'm not. I'm charitable towards them because they're Christians. I'm not agreeing with their theology. And I think he threads that that needle really well. That's actually a really nice way to say it. I agree with you 100%. We can't mm – -hmm. people don't allow you 
to be anything but polarizing because mm-hmm. they are so afraid of giving the other team any sense of victory. Oh yeah. Um, it, so we have to just state things in incredibly stark categories. Yes. And no's. Yeah. And any nuance is seen as compromise. Right. And, or it's, even just, uh, you know, some of the people that I know that love Jesus most are full on charismatics. Like I, yeah, they just yeah, love yeah. the gospel and I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I disagree yeah. with how you're functioning in certain ways, but I'm not going to really put this down. It's like people are coming to Christ and you guys are like working things out. Like it's all good, you know? Yeah, and that's right, man. It's, but, it, but people get hardcore. I mean, it's like, and I'm like, okay, orthodoxy is good. Uh, but, but the question that everybody's always asking is to what, to what, at what point have you gone from orthodoxy to legalism? Yeah, and yeah. that's, yeah, you know, yeah. It's a tough thing. Yeah. That's such an interesting topic. I, I want to do a MA seminar here at Bethlehem on the gifts. Oh, really? Yeah. Do I mean, you believe be in the gifts? Like, so, so uh, yeah, I'm tongues? a, I'm a continuationist. Same. Okay. Um, but I mean, so much the devil's in the details, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because we all have a bucket for gifts that don't continue. Mm. Uh, most of us do. Like most of us will say the apostolic gift doesn't continue. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I get that. It, it, yeah. And so in that sense, we're all cessationists. Mm-hmm. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So so the, the difficulty or the key is what gifts continue? Which of them? Mm-hmm. And they're all miraculous. They're all spirit- uh, beyond natural ability. So it's not just miraculous gifts don't continue, but the other ones do. They're all miraculous. Mm-hmm. And everybody has a category for gifts that have ceased with the apostolic era. Although there are, of course, some Pentecostals and others that think the apostolic gift continues. Yeah. And I, I, I disagree with that one. But So, yeah, I would ask, and maybe I could put this in the podcast, maybe not, but I, I would ask like, uh, are you, so you say the apostolic gift, I would say... Tell me if I'm wrong here. I would say the apostolic mm-hmm. that 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 the apostolic office isn't that different than the apostolic gift. Like the I look at Ephesians and it talks about the five offices, and then yeah, like yeah. you know John Piper. I think I had one conversation with him, and this was it. I I asked him about this specifically. I was trying to figure it out, and he kind of will say like the 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 teachers, pa- pastors, and evangelists are built on the pro- prophets and apostles. Yeah, Ephesians two twenty. Yeah, they set the the groundwork in the apostolic age, but then yeah. those offices cease to exist now, and the three offices now are continuously existing. Which I don't know. Are you kind of saying that uh, you're saying gifts, but is uh, the way that I've thought about them are offices? Yeah, yeah. Detached from the gifts in First Corinthians. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I don't. I wouldn't draw a dark line between office and gifts. Apostolic okay. gifting accompanies the apostolic office. Uh, I think there was a kind of New Testament prophet who uh, Ephesians two twenty says the okay. kind of church age was built upon. So, mm-hmm. and I would say the prophetic gift continues. So I'm a little inconsistent there. So I, I'm happy to. But I would say the pastoral gift matches up with a pastoral office. But then mm. again, you've got gifts of mercy. You've got gifts of yeah. um, healing and uh, gifts of tongues. And I don't think there's yeah. an office that is like, oh, that's the tongue speaker. or That's the one who yeah. always yeah. does. Right. Because right. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, like 29, I think, seek 
you're supposed to mm. seek gifts. And so you can get gifts you haven't had and mm-hmm. um, suggesting that just because you've exercised them once doesn't necessarily mean you'll do it kind of you're right. the guy now. Well, the Holy so. Spirit kind of will work its it work out the will of God. Um, the way that I like, so I've tried to speak in tongues because I was reading that and I was like, okay, I, I, I can't. Some charismatics frustrate me, but I can't let that take away from what the Bible That's is commanding right. of me. And so I'm, if I'm told to seek out the gifts of the Spirit, I need to try to do it. And mm-hmm. and so I would pray like, God, let me speak in tongues or let me do whatever you want me to do. Um, kind of go yeah. through the list of them. Yeah. And I, I, I tried to speak in tongues. And then I was like, okay, I need to make sure that what I'm doing, because then there's glossolalia and people are like, okay, you're just babbling. Um, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. which J.I. Packer is like, if that's what you're doing, if it's just babbling and if it's just nonsense, but it's bringing you closer to Christ and helping you be sanctified, then so what? Do it. Who cares? Because mm-hmm. it's and so I'm like, OK, great. But I, I was speaking a tongue in prayer and I was writing down some of the stuff that I was saying just to what it sounded like. I don't know if I yeah, actually yeah. wrote. Yeah, so yeah. I like came out like the main word that kept coming back to me was the word merciful in Arama- Aramaic or Ar- mm. I, I think Aramaic. So I was like, okay. okay, that's interesting. Maybe this is legit or I don't know. But like that's uh, – so I've just gone back and forth. I have no idea. what. I, so half the time yeah. I'm like maybe I'm just like crazy and just doing this thing like <laughs> like yeah, yeah. kind of being yeah, crazy yeah. or maybe, maybe it is legitimate. Um, but that's a thing. But I do think that there is some sort of humility that God is, is trying to um, – get Christians to submit to or act in, in the pursuing of the gifts. And that maybe I spoke in tongues once, but the Holy Spirit is working himself out in a multitude of ways among his people, among the the church. And that I speak in tongues once today, but tomorrow I I practice the gift of wisdom or whatever. And and it's like, you know, different ways working out different times for different purposes. So I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there are stable offices and gifts that we, you can recognize. Oh, that guy's an elder. He has an mm-hmm. office and he has the gifts of likely, I mean, he should have teaching, but likely administration and other others of the gifts that sort of are subsumed under offices. Mm-hmm. And those are pretty mm-hmm. stable things. Yeah. But he's still, even in that office and with the presumption of gifts that accompany it, you still pray, Lord, Stir up the gifts, help the words that I speak to be attended yeah. by your spirit. Right. I mean, there's still, like you say, there's still a humble reliance mm-hmm. on the spirit mm-hmm. and a desire for the edification of the body, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. has humility and love have to be the hallmarks of. Right. And faith too. I mean, we just have to believe that we what we see isn't all there is to reality. Yeah. Which we're, we're so conditioned Oh yeah, man. Like we're like C.S. Lewis describing Calvinism and and Arminianism in a way in the great divorce Mm -hmm. and kind of in that like, yeah, they're all kind of right and all kind of wrong, but they exist in time and God doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so both of those theologies are, are contingent on time. Not like, of course we exist in time and Christ came into time. And so Mm -hmm. predestination and, and Arminianism being based on time doesn't disqualify them because God has put us within that natural law. But there, there's going to be, and I think Arminianism is more wrong than it's right. Don't get me wrong. I don't want, 
you know, because but there is something to the fact that I'm sure when we die and we go to heaven and we kind of exist outside of the dimensions that we're bound to, we're going to be like, oh, yeah. whoa, like yeah, this yeah. was this was way bigger than I thought or way more expansive than I thought. And I was very mm-hmm. constrained in my in my outlook, which I don't think is a bad thing because mm-hmm. humans mm-hmm. are designed to 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 have structures that help them work their their life out and, and their faith out mm-hmm, i think that mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. even if those structures are 30 percent technically correct outside of the bounds of natural law that yeah, they yeah. could be a hundred percent correct inside of the bounds of natural law mm-hmm, so that's an mm-hmm. interesting thing to think about huh. i love it that is interesting Okay, well, that's a, let good, me, that's a good segue. I was gonna say, yeah, let me get started. So for um, and I'm it, it, so. You, is it okay if I add some of that into there? Like if we just you transition, do, you do right whatever into it? you do, whatever you want. Okay, sweet. So people listening, the, I'm with Jared Compton. Um, Jared, I'll let you introduce yourself, but uh, you're a you're a professor from Bethlehem Seminary. Um, do you want right. to kind of give people? A little bit of uh, introduction. You're a professor. What you've written some stuff. You've done you've done a decent amount of stuff. So tell them about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thanks, Andy. Jared Compton. I'm an associate. So I just got promoted over the summer. Oh, so yeah, wow. come on. So it came with access to the Bethlehem Jacuzzi um, <laughs> nice. and the secret handshake from <laughs> Pastor John. Um, so associate professor of New Testament and biblical theology. I teach. We've got a seminar in a college. I teach in both. Uh, I, so New Testament classes, Greek classes, biblical theology. I love to think about how the Bible fits together. I've written, the stuff I've written has been principally concerned with that question, how the Bible fits together. And uh, Hebrews was sort of my initial focus and continues to be a place of great mm. interest and kind of, I love thinking about it because that's such a, that book, mm of all books in the new Testament sort of says, here's how you go about putting the whole story together. Mm-hmm. So once I finish l- learning everything I can from Hebrews, maybe I'll move on to uh, Romans or John or something, but yeah. for now I'm pretty happy. So yeah, it's yeah. Cr- good to be with you again, Andy. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me. Like Hebrews is such a fascinating book because it's a mystery. It's such a mystery. I look at, so the way that I look at this, and of course, you know, when I talk to people like you, you guys are like scholars and stuff, and I'm just like barely graduated high school. So sometimes I say stuff and I'm like, I hope that what I'm about to say is actually true in some way. But the way that I look at the New Testament is obviously you have the four gospels, you have all the epistles and then you have the apocalyptic revelations at, at the end. And then, um, but within, within the epistles, you kind of have two books that I would say like our systematic theologies, which is mm. Romans and Hebrews. And mm. I feel like there's been so much ink spilled on Romans because it's, and it's a great, obviously a great book and no, nothing wrong with that. Um, but Hebrews is, is like a mysterious book, uh, and I think it requires a lot of understanding of the Old Testament, of Jewish tradition, right. and things like that. And um, for Gentiles, for people like us, we we look at Hebrews, and I it gets a little bit intimidating because we're like mm-hmm. we don't understand the culture of the Jewish people, the full history. A lot of times, it's really hard to understand even the Old Testament and all the stories and narratives and things that are happening. And so, 
and we don't know who this book is written by. And mm-hmm. it's just like this big, huge mystery just mm-hmm. plopped mm-hmm. right in the middle of the mm-hmm. New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so that's sweet. I think that's so cool and very fun um, to look into. And you have, you know, Hebrews 6, where it's like talking about falling away. And people are like, mm-hmm. what in the world is this? I thought mm-hmm. you couldn't fall away. And, and so... Um, so that's like, I mean, that's cool. Like what, my first question kind of would be what, why did you, did you choose to like specialize in this or did yeah, you? Great, great, great. Yeah. yeah. So there's a story here. So I'm at yeah. Ted's it's er, uh, mm-hmm. early first decade of the two thousands and uh, PT O'Brien. So Peter O'Brien, Anglican, mm-hmm. Australian scholar, mm-hmm. uh, commentator extraordinaire, uh, a guy I still appreciate. And so your listeners, if they Google him, they'll they'll kind of see there was a uh, some uh, stuff that went on with some of his commentaries where there was some unintentional borrowing. So a lot of the mm. commentaries Pete O'Brien had written are no longer available, which I get it. But uh, so he comes onto mm. campus. He's in the middle of writing his Hebrews commentary for the Pillar New Testament commentary series that uh, Don Carson edits. Uh, in fact, Sigurd Grindheim has just, uh, if that's even how you say Sigurd's last name, <laughs> has just given us a new edition and replaced Peter's. But he came on the campus, taught a week-long seminar. A bunch of us uh, PhD students were in there. And it just, it was like you say, it was a book that had been a mystery that I've always thought someday I would love to better understand Mm-hmm. What's going on in Hebrews? Yeah. And, and just that initial week uh, sparked an interest that, like I kind of said earlier, hasn't yet been satisfied. I'm still, there's still so much in those 13 chapters that I think, ah, oh, it, it contributes to so many questions Christology, biblical theology, like mm-hmm. you say, perseverance. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anybody ever asks me questions about Hebrews, the first one is always, who wrote it? <laughs> and then the second is always like, all right, so what's going on? Can believers lose yeah. their salvation? What's Hebrews 6 all about? Right. And uh, so you which, say like it was, uh, you know, Priscilla wrote it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just, hey, I will say <laughs> there is a masculine participle in Hebrews 11.32. And oh. I say, okay, I don't think the book's pseudepigraphical. So mm. at least I know a dude wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I know mm-hmm. that that dude who wrote it wasn't Paul because Hebrews 2, 1 to 4 seems to imply that it's written by a second generation Christian. Oh, which would interesting. Seem to, yeah, which would seem to fly against how Paul describes himself in Galatians 1. So it's a dude oh, and it's mm-hmm. not Paul. So there, I've narrowed it down to right. uh, what? Who, who, who else? Well, I don't like know. The, the fathers maybe? Well, the, the thing that I had heard was uh, – that is there any validity to this that it was Paul writing? So what is this written in? This is written in. So this is translated. This is in Greek, right? In no, Greek, yeah, that's right. But translated from Hebrew. No, no, cross, no, no. What am I thinking? Yeah, right yeah. Now? Well, some people suggest Matthew's gospel was originally written in Hebrew, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. it was uh, translated by Matthew himself. But uh, Hebrews, maybe what you're thinking is just the fact that it has the subscription pros hebreos uh mm. which is is how we sort of got our title hebrews and mm. it's an inference made from the text because the text like you say has so much uh 
it's thoroughly uh, woven in with the Old Testament. It assumes such a high knowledge of uh, thorough knowledge of the Levitical mm-hmm. cult and the tabernacle. So, uh, but I'm thinking of there's like a theory of Paul and Luke working together on this. Okay. That, that Paul yeah, had written yeah. it in some way, Luke had translated it, and so that's why people see some similarities between Paul's writing. But then they see things that are like, "There's no way this could have been Paul." Uh, gosh, but I cannot remember. Well, what I heard David about. Allen makes that case that it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, the translation bit I don't know, but the fact that Luke has been uh, said to have written it. People make that case. Mm -hmm. Part of the difficulty is we just don't have enough uh, writing from uh, Luke or other sort of the lesser Uh, known folks to falsify those theses. Like, yeah, it it has a lot of similarities, but when you look at it, it has a lot of similarities with other things written mm -hmm. in the first century by non-native Greek speakers. So mm-hmm. it's hard, It's easy to say, look at all these overlaps. But then you, when you recognize what a small sample size you have, it's hard to right. be definitive. Huh. But it's okay. so interesting because it would yeah. be so nice to know. <laughs> yeah, it would be sweet. Sweet I mean, to be know. Cool. Yeah. So I, I think about um, when I was... so. We're in a small group and we went through Hebrews and I was really doing a deep dive as much as I could. And one of the actually main takeaways that I got from the book had nothing to do with, I mean, maybe a little bit with like predestination, but had more to do with the concept of rest. And and that seems like a a big underlying current, a theme underneath what this Mm -hmm. book is talking about. But I had thought, again, you're going to have to correct me. Maybe I'm a heretic here, but like I had gotten this, this, uh, I kind of come to the conclusion, I don't know where it was in Hebrews. I should have figured it out before I came on this, but that God had in some capacity had set all into on the sixth day had set what what was to come into into um into motion and mm-hmm. he then rested entered an eternal rest on the seventh day and in that he is still resting but all of the things that we see throughout time of god working work uh in time you know you think of mo uh the burning bush. You think of mm-hmm, all of mm-hmm, these things that we see mm-hmm. of God speaking things to people, prophesying, um, that those were almost like manifestations of God that he had set forth in the sixth day. And those things were to come up as uh, I'm, I'm, you know, using like regular people lingo, but like as almost yeah, yeah. holograms of himself throughout time mm, that mm, he had set mm. forth into motion. And that would be kind of an underlying Calvinist argument in the, the, the maybe a substructure of Hebrews uh, theology of rest. And maybe mm-hmm. that's all wrong. You should tell me that right now. But when I yeah. was like figuring that out, I was like, holy crap, this is really interesting. Now tell me if I need to just delete that from my head. And and so I understand, Andy, it's interesting. The idea that God in Hebrews 4, Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about the rest. You're suggesting when God rested, uh, it's the inference we can make from that is, look, he said everything, his plan was done, it's made, mm-hmm. and now it's simply unfolding. Yeah. And the correspondence that has with kind of Calvinistic uh, uh, historiography is, look, this this is just the unfolding of something that's already been written. Mm-hmm. It's not like God experiencing or, or kind of he's open to new experiences coming up with the story as he goes. Right. No, it's think, already – yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and no, think about it in um, – 
in that I think when people think about what's happening in their life right now and how God's interacting with them today, they mm-hmm. think that God's up in heaven. And this could be how it is, so I'm not saying it's not. But God's up in heaven looking at this situation right now and then doing something with it, you know, working it out right now for his plan. He knew he, mm-hmm. he had foreknowledge that that's what he was going to do, but he did that. And I'm saying God's like taking a nap and a hologram's been played in which he has pre-filmed everything that was going to happen and all the pieces mm-hmm. are in place. And that's just how things are being worked out yeah, in real yeah. time. Yeah, and my only pushback there is we get uh, we get a picture in the Bible of that mm-hmm. idea of look, he's predestined mm-hmm. everything, and he's just hit play, and the history movie is just inexorably going along towards yeah. God's end. But but then we also get language in the Bible where God says, "Look, I'm working everything together mm-hmm. for the good of those who love me." Mm-hmm. What what? Uh, those guys meant for evil, e.g. your awful brothers, Joseph, mm. uh, I meant for good. You get an impression that God is actively at work at in work. history. So so it's, yes, he's resting. Something was complete. There's some truth to which Hebrews 4 is pointing, but mm. not over against to negate God's activity sure. Uh, and I just think God's relationship to time, you you got the wrong – I mean, you need to get a metaphysicist on this podcast because <laughs> you know, I mean, that is like – that's a blow your circuits kind of mm. question. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think the presentation in the Bible is more of an active engagement mm. with time, not a standing outside of and simply – you know, I'm thinking of yeah. like a deist presentation. He just started this thing, bah, 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 bah. it's going along, and he's just out there kind of sitting mm. in a lawn chair. Right. I, and right. I don't even like to, I don't want to be, that's too uh, informal with God. So I don't right. want to, but he's like, he, he's resting, whatever yeah, that means. In yeah, heaven, that's you know? right. So if I were to yeah. talk about resting in Hebrews 4, just to mm. kind of dip my toes in here, I think of it as God created the uh, telos, the yeah, end, okay. the goal. And God said, okay, this is where I want mm-hmm. humans to join me. I could even think of it as new creation, the mm-hmm. world to come. And he said, I'm here. And Adam, Eve, if you'll faithfully engage with what I've said, you will be perfected mm-hmm. And then you'll reach the eschatology I've already reached and you'll join me. And God's like saying, come on, come on. Are you going to come join me? And Adam and Eve are like, whatever, we're going to do our own thing. Mm -hmm. Sin, uh, Genesis 3. So the rest of human history has been God. uh, It didn't take him by by surprise, but God making it a way for human beings to join him Mm -hmm. in the glory and rest in... uh, beautiful place that he's been in since day seven of creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that so. makes sense. No. And, and it's good to talk me off that ledge a little bit because <laughs> the, uh, that, that isn't, it's interesting. Yeah. You, you go a lot of different places, you know, cause there is a limited, there's some limited context there. And then if you put it within the larger context of the Bible, God is, his hand is working things out in, in real time. And that's an int- that's another thing that's important to remember. I wonder the thing that comes straight to my head, which I think is what comes to a lot of people's mind is, well, what, what these situations where, gosh, 
I, I want to say it was Moses who kind of changed, like quote unquote, changed God's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of the right story. Well, yeah, maybe Exodus 32 when God says, look, I'm so fed up yes. with Israel. Yeah. They made this stupid idol. I'm going to mm. destroy him and start over with you. And Moses is <laughs> like, hold on, hold up. Yeah. Don't do that. What, what will the other nations say? Yeah. Yeah. What do you th- what do you say to that? That what's happening there is God yeah, 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 yeah. has has he and I, I'm I know this is like wow you know because I love it I love that's it. a big it's question. A great question yeah 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 it's a great question so I I think we've got to put in place things like God says look I don't change I don't change my mind um, I'm not uh, at the whim of human uh, decision mm. or actions I am uh, I'm God. I, I control and know the future as well as I know the past. I set things in motion. There's all this talk in the Bible about God's sovereignty Yeah, uh, that means, okay, we've got sort of that post in the ground. And then we come to text like Exodus 32, where it seems like God is saying, I'm going to do something. And Moses says, wait, don't do it. And God says, mm-hmm. oh, that's a good point. I haven't thought about that. Thank you, Moses. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to yeah. change my mind. And you got to wrestle. So I'd want your listeners, you got to wrestle with the fact that the Bible is full of statements like, I am God, there is no other. I planned the end from the beginning. And there's like a hundred of those. Mm-hmm. Alongside of those, we got statements where God says, uh, okay, I I will reverse the course, Moses, that I just told you I intended to do because you've interceded. Yeah, and we've got well. to find some way where we're not... Uh, discounting one or the other. Mm-hmm. I think there are ways, profitable ways where we can talk about how they relate. But I mean, at the end of the day, uh, I think there's an infinite mind that's required to understand how God's sovereignty and human responsibility inter- interrelate. I don't think they're contradictory. I just think they're beyond our ability. Well, this is so people might this might be helpful for people because we're going through on this podcast, me and my pastor are going through Orthodoxy on Optic Theology mm-hmm. Podcast, a book by mm-hmm. G.K. Chesterton. And the first, and obviously Chesterton was like a Calvin and John Calvin hater. I mean, he was not, he did not like John Calvin. Uh, but, and he was a Catholic, but he had a lot of, I think, really good ways. Essentially, the book is about how orthodoxy is a, a set of paradoxes that you must accept that then either the rest of the faith proceeds out of. And, and that's, that's a real, that's legitimate across the board. Like no matter what mm-hmm. theological conviction you have, whether it be Calvinism or whatever, that there are at the core of Christianity, a, there's these, whatever, six, seven different paradoxes that you must accept in faith because you can't logically and reasonably uh, connect them because they're mm. paradoxes. They don't really make mm. full sense, but you have to accept them as they are. And it's a mm. mystery of the faith and that, he spends a whole first chapter just discussing how the person who is so uh, logic and reason focused, they're going to go crazy because when you get to things like this, mm. uh, you're going to find that your limited scope and limited ability to think at this broad or complex level is actually just yeah. going to cause you to go, run around in circles. And you know, yeah, he has that's that right. quote where he says like, 
and it's and it's a good quote. He says something along the lines of, you know, it's an act of faith to 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 be, think that what you or to believe that what you think corresponds with reality at all. And mm. so at the you know at the and I'm not like a postmodernist. You know, some people are like, oh yeah, nothing's real. That's not what he's saying. But I think that there is a there's this the act of faith happening in these the paradoxical level of Christian faith that. Is that kind of what you're trying to get at yeah, there? Yeah, that's really nice. That's right. And uh, people will quibble over uh, when can you punt and say, okay, it's a mystery. We can't figure it out. Yeah. Some people are willing to uh, th- toss up their hands sooner yeah. than others. But I think everybody has to admit at some point the secret things belong to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is God. I am not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and I think we're helped to, uh, talk about that by looking about, looking mm-hmm. at how Christians have talked about these paradoxes for mm-hmm. two millennia. And we should be suspicious of people who come along and say, Hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you, mm-hmm. it's not a paradox. I've solved it. Thank you very much. Here's my <laughs> 300 page book. Right. Um, buy a hundred copies for your yeah. friends. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. So right. that's, and that's, uh, and I think that it's an attitude thing too. If you're going into like, if, if trying to figure out the paradoxes are fine, if you're doing it for the sake of, uh, one, knowing God more at a deeper level, yes. but two, worshiping God. And, and if you are okay with getting to the point where you say like, man, I like, don't really get this, but I trust mm. that God's what God's the revealed will of God is still true, and I'm not going to mm. fully understand the secret will of God or the secret things. And that and that's like a that's kind of I don't want to say that's what theology is because there's a lot of things that you do objectively learn through theologizing, but it, there's there's levels of theology that you get to that point and you just have to that's where the faith thing kicks in where it's like yes. the, the great PhD the, theologian. That's the beauty of Christianity is that the PhD can be at the same level as the layman and that mm-hmm. they're both they're both putting their faith in the same paradox and that that's they exactly both can't right. figure it out. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. There there's gotta come a place where you bow the knee to the Lord and you put your hand over your mouth. Um, I do like the idea of systematic theology helping mm. us say how everything in the Bible can be mm. true. I think that's how John Webster defines systematics. Listen, the Bible mm. says X and Y. How can both of those propositions be true? I think that's mm-hmm. the uh, proper remit of systematic theology. Yeah. But even even those delving the deepest, uh, you know, it makes me think of Lord of the Rings. You, if you yeah. dive, delve too deep in Moria, you, you will unearth uh, a Balrog, which is mm. to say you'll start saying something untrue and unleash uh, yeah. error into the church. So you got to be careful. Yeah, that's okay. So with all that being said, then now we can transition into into um, answering the yeah, question of Hebrews six. Um, so okay, so I'm going to read a little. I'm going to start by reading this section of Hebrews six that we're going to talk about, and okay. I'll give a little bit of context to people. And in the description of this podcast, you've written for Desiring God and for uh, Gospel Coalition. You wrote an article on this topic on Desiring God, and I'll put that in the description so people maybe could read that now or whatever or later, um, but it's really helpful. And so Hebrews 6, for people who don't know, is kind of this confusing uh, passage, and you'll know why after I read it. So I will start now. It says... <clears throat> Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction without 
uh, about washing, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay, so that's the first six verses of this chapter. Maybe we'll need to go further, but... If you were following along, that that's kind of where the question comes from. You're hearing, and I'll just start with my pers- perspective here. I guess my my the way I'm reading this, and then you can you'll break break your stuff down and break my stuff down, and then we'll go mm-hmm. from there. Because when I read this, so I'm coming from a more Calvinist perspective: predestination, you can't fall away from your faith, perseverance of the saints, all that great stuff. Um, but then I read this, and I'm like, okay. So here's what this sounds like to me. If you partake in the, if you've been enlightened and you have tasted the the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, that sounds like you're a Christian who falls away from your faith, who leaves the faith and... And while I could go, you know, we can go to all these other verses that say you can't fall away from your faith as a Christian. If I just zone in on this passage, it's very confusing. And so this is where I think some people get tripped up in their in their quest for figuring out the predestination, free will, conversation, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's an interesting one. And I'm and so I'm wondering. So let's break down what you think is is true about this and and how we read it and um, what you know interpretations are best and things like that. So you you go you go from here and I'll interrupt you if I need. So like that's a great setup. You've Mm -hmm. just said and maybe in the notes to the show put a a link to a set of verses that do talk Mm -hmm. about the fact that salvation is secured. Mm -hmm. Because if those verses don't exist, then Hebrews six isn't a problem, right? Uh, Like yeah. if the Bible isn't saying over and over again, look, you, uh, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Uh, I'm the potter and I mm. have the right to make of the clay what I, what I want. Romans 9, John mm. uh, 10, John 6, Ephesians mm. 1, et cetera, et cetera. If passages don't exist that seem to suggest you can't lose your salvation, then what are we talking about? Why is Hebrews right. 6 even a problem? Mm-hmm. So it's a problem only if those other passages do exist. And the fact that they do uh, means that what you've just said is right on. How can the author of Hebrews talk about uh, what sounds like somebody having a salvation experience? As Mm. you said, we've got those descriptions. They've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. They've Taste of the goodness of the word of God. Your 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 listeners will want to put their eyes on Hebrews six four to six. That's mm. the heart of this question. How can those descriptions, if they are of Christians, how can the fact that it goes on to say and have fallen away? Mm-hmm. Somebody had Christian experiences. They fell away. They can't be renewed to repentance. Mm-hmm. That's what the Bible says here in Hebrews six four to six. How can that be true? When we've got a lot of other verses saying, or seeming to say, you can't lose your salvation. So there's a nice little paradox that you just mm-hmm. kind of set up for us. 
uh, G.K. Chesterton style. Right. What are we gonna What are we gonna do with both that you can't fall away, and then Hebrews six coming along and saying, "Oh, but you can, and if you do, it's dangerous because you can't be restored." So, mm. I think we don't. I would say I'm gonna say a few things. I would say we never want to miss the dire status of the person who falls away. In Hebrews 6, 6, it says that they cannot be brought back to repentance. Mm. So that should sober all of us, uh, especially those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus. That is a sobering warning, which is what this is. This is a warning. So um, I, I suppose what I would want to say to begin with is to read Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 correctly, you got to do a couple of other things first. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you got to realize is that Hebrews is uh, a distinct uh, document within the New Testament and that it goes back and forth between theology and preaching or application. It's mm. it's unusual. We don't have any other letter in the New Testament like this. The author will make a theological argument and then he'll pause and he'll preach. He'll exhort. Mm. He'll say, you got to do this or let's go. Mm -hmm. And then he'll go back to preaching and then he'll go back to applying, preaching, applying, preaching, applying. Mm. And it's this back and forth thing we don't find anywhere else. Usually Paul, when Paul does his letter stuff, he teaches in the first half of the letter, mm -hmm. then he applies in the second. If you can look at Ephesians yeah, 1 right. through 3, Ephesians 4 through 6. So what we've got to realize is that when Hebrews does that, we've got to notice that those pastoral applications that Hebrews makes, it makes them after doing the arguments every time it pauses and gives us pastoral applications. Hebrews is inviting us to read those pastoral uh, exhortations all together. Hmm. So Hebrews gives us its letter by saying exposition, exhortation, exposition, exhortation. Hmm. But if you fail to realize that exposition, the argument is actually a sequential argument being made throughout the letter, hmm. then you'll miss the argument. If you fail to realize that those exhortations are all connected, they're all uh, using similar language, they're using shared Old Testament stories. If you don't read them together, if you just read each one on its own, then you're going to miss, you're going to miss the author's argument. You're not going to trace it and you're going to miss the weight, the, the uh, pastoral pressure of his exhortation. So hmm. this this is an insight if your listeners are interested at all. Scott McKnight wrote an article back in the 90s in Trinity Journal where he pleaded with people to read the warnings all together. Read them synthetically is the language he used. And I think he's exactly right. Hmm. And so when we do that, if we're to read, and there's several of these, Hebrews 2 has an exhortation, Hebrews 3 and 4 has another one, Hebrews 6 is the big one, mm. Hebrews 10 has a another one in 1026. Dude, there's, this might be a dumb question, okay? Yeah, say it. 
But does any has anybody written? And I don't even say written. Just organized, like written, had a Bible that organizes Hebrews in that way, where it's like, yeah, 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 this yeah. is exhortation. This is you know, where yeah. it like very clearly lays that out for readers. Uh, the short answer, no. Mm-hmm. Um, you've you've got guys who have done work on the structure of Hebrews who get close to that. A guy named George Guthrie okay. um, has a book on the structure of Hebrews where he uh, lays out sections sort of uh, by grouping them together. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot to think about, but when you when you get the basic idea, it makes sense. His mm-hmm. argument develops and it pauses at certain points to kind of hammer home what he's trying to say. If you want to follow the argument, you got to trace it kind of skipping over the application so you don't fail to see, oh, this second argument connects to that first one and this third one connects back to the second. You'll want to follow that through, but you also want mm-hmm. to read the exhortations altogether. Now, uh, one of the things then that will begin to help is when you start reading the author's exhortations altogether, you will begin to realize that there's one Old Testament story that sort of provides the grist, the language mm. for every one of his exhortations. There's one controlling story that every time the author applies his message, he's recalling. And that story is, of course, the story of the wilderness. Mm. It's the story of Israel in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. We, we see it most clearly in Hebrews 3 and 4, where he tells his friends, look, don't be like those guys uh, who disobeyed God's voice in the wilderness. Look right. what happened yeah. to them. They mm. didn't enter the promised land. So he goes to the wilderness generation as this great illustration of what it's like to be a Christian. You've had your Exodus moment. You've been rescued from Egypt, but Mm. you're not yet in Canaan. You haven't crossed the Jordan River. And so you're between your salvation, your Exodus and your new creation existence. Yeah. 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 And so you're pilgrimaging. And he says, those guys in their pilgrimage, they fell in unbelief. Don't be like that. Mm. And if, because if you do, just like theirs, your bodies will be left smoldering in the desert sands. Mm-hmm. So when we begin to read the exhortations against the wilderness background, then something really curious happens. You then come to a passage like Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, and you're thinking about Exodus and wilderness and listen to what sort of pops out. See if you can see it. Mm-hmm. So you're you're uh, you're we're reading this against Exodus, and you hear uh, they've been enlightened. Mm. They've tasted the heavenly gift. You think, oh, is that talking about manna? manna uh, maybe right. it is. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. Oh, is that talking about the pillar of fire mm. by night and cloud mm. by day? You've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Hey. They were at Sinai, weren't they? They they got the law from heaven itself. The powers Mm. of the coming age, you saw the ground open up and swallow the sons (laughs) of Korah. But but even better than that, uh, if we're going to think of the Exodus, they saw 10 extraordinary plagues. Mm -hmm. We're talking about powers of the age to come. In fact- And the parting of the sea. uh, Come on. Right, which is a big one. That's exactly right. I mean- 
the kind of the the uh, par excellence example. In, in fact, even calling the 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 um, plagues powers of the age to come recalls the fact that John the in his apocalypse when he describes the judgments to come the age to come he mm-hmm. uses language of the plague so oh wow okay when you start looking in hebrews 6 4 to 6 and you remember that all of the pastor's exhortations are to be read sort of as one continuous reflection on the wilderness then it becomes a little bit easier to see these experiences were experiences that everybody in the Exodus generation had. Mm-hmm. Everybody did. One thing that I think that I'm thinking of, though, yeah, um, that all makes a lot of sense. The one there's one of these that that like sticks out from the rest of them, though. I mean, maybe it, it doesn't. The Enlightenment that so yeah. so. Uh, one, like what a word, what like a weird word to use anyways. Cause of course, when people think about being enlightened, they think about like Kant and, and the enlightenment movement, which <laughs> is right. like thousands of years later. That's, but anyways, right, that's right. That's uh, right. <laughs> so there's that, but then there's also, I look at the way, obviously this is written in English, but it says, uh, of those who have once been enlightened. Okay. So that's, that's a very, uh, that is a definitive statement. Like they have, yeah. they have been enlightened. Whereas the rest of yeah. them say that uh, they've tasted something. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. one feels like it's it's different. So maybe I'm getting ahead of things. I don't know. But that feels different, doesn't that feel yeah. different? Um, I mean, I I think it is of a piece with the rest of them. I hear what you're mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear enlightened that feels. Uh, like language used of illumination by the spirit that inevitably leads to salvation. Yeah. And I would say there was a sense in which everybody in the Exodus generation was enlightened. Mm. It could be something as um, literal as they were, they were enlightened and led by the Holy spirit himself in that Mm. pillar of fire it could be something to the extent of they were enlightened by they were given words from God himself and illumined by the Torah mm-hmm. or, or any number of other um, kind of experiences that the Exodus, Exodus generation has that right. could be described as enlightened. You're kind of um, saying that it's 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 a, a question of to what degree. So the right. enlightenment right. to what degree? Because if people... You know, if if I've been fully enlightened, then I've partaken completely into salvation, and now I'm part of the family of God. Whereas that's right, may, maybe, and I don't know where there would be. There's probably a lot of evidence in the Bible for this, but somebody being partially enlightened or or uh, halfway so, or whatever, I don't know. Yeah. So one of the uh, parallel texts that has often been useful to shine light on Hebrews six four to six is mm-hmm. Jesus parable of the sower. Okay. Yeah. yeah, And in that parable, right, Mm. you've got a seed Mm. that's sown, uh, ground is enlightened. They receive the word and some of that ground, it springs up and grows for a while. And boy, it looks exactly like phenomenologically, like every other good plant. Mm. But when the cares of this world, when the deceitfulness of riches, come along, Mm. it chokes that plant, 
revealing hmm. that in my understanding of the parable of the sower, that wasn't good soil. That was hmm. uh, soil that was full of thorns is how Jesus yeah. describes it. I like so, that you said the phenomenological that that was yes. that uh, for people maybe who don't know what that means that there's kind of an ontological nature and a phenomenological nature and those two things aren't always in uh, in sync with each other that somebody can there can be a there a phenomenon or something that that is seen outwardly as as uh, so somebody could look like they're a Christian outwardly but and that's, right. and that's that's kind of the phenomenon of what's happening you're seeing something that that you can see externally but what's happening internally is kind of what's happening ontologically in that they can seem like they're a Christian but inside they're actually not that the, the soil was not there and that they it was choked up and and so what's actually happening phenomenologically isn't in line totally with what is ontologically true about that person and so the so, so that's like so the gospel so for people who don't know the gospel is a an ontological death and then an ontological resurrection and that you're what what is what is true about who you are as a human being fundamentally changes at, at, on during salvation. And so um, sometimes people can see that and sometimes they can't, cause that can work the opposite way too. Yeah. Somebody can be an ontological Christian and, and phenomenologically not look like it. That's and right. that's what's so confusing about Christianity. But uh, yeah, that's so just, exactly I right. liked how you said that though. Yeah. So it even reminds me of that other parable that comes shortly after the parable of the sower, where you have the parable mm. of the weed, wheats and mm. the uh, tares, where they grow up side by side. And you can't until they sprout ahead, Jesus says, you can't tell the difference between them. And yeah. that's when the disciples are like, hey, should we go out and kind of cut those down should we do should we weed and he's like mm. no you may pull up the good ones oh it, it's, mm. it's to your point sometimes on the surface i mean this is what a pastor looks out every sunday he sees a room full of people that have most of them have professed faith in the lord jesus mm -hmm. but unlike god and um yeah he doesn't have sort of a mm. spidey supervision mm. to know oh that guy really is ontologically in his being his ontos mm. his being that guy is a christian but phenomenologically what what appears to me mm. is that he is so i think that's why the descriptions in hebrews 6 are so challenging is they recognize there's an experience people can have of god mm. that is uh looks like sounds like christian genuine experience Right. But it, but it's not known whether it is until you see the life lived and you see, mm -hmm. well, they did. They held on to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they had the enduring seed in them that was powering them on. But if they mm -hmm. fall away, it reveals, okay, they actually were uh, professing mm -hmm. but not real Christians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which you won't know until the glorification. I mean, until we're glorified in heaven or whatever. And so that's, and that's, I mean, so there's been churches and denominations, and this is kind of the Christian thing is weeding out the, the ontological Christians from the phenomenological mm -hmm. Christians. And, you know, you have, if your church does, uh, 
membership. That's like one way that that churches try to figure this out. Obviously, you, you can figure it out as good as you can, but you can't ever actually know for certain. Uh, which is why I get I get frustrated with this when people will say. So if I say like you know you know uh, let's say you're not a Christian, Jared. I'm like Jared's not a Christian. Yeah. And somebody's like, yeah, but you shouldn't say like you like you can't judge. But then five seconds later, that same person will be like, but this per- this other person is such a great Christian. And so mm-hmm. like Christians do this weird thing where it's OK to affirm somebody else as being a Christian if they think that they're a Christian phenomenologically. But if they don't yeah. think that they're a Christian, if I don't think somebody is a Christian phenomenologically and I just say that, yeah, everybody yeah. gets frustrated with that. Is that I, and maybe that's just because yeah, people are like that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I do think we're, you know, with that whole bit in Matthew 16, where the apostles are given the keys of the kingdom Mm -hmm. and given the authority, derivative authority from God and the Lord Jesus to pronounce uh, who is in and who is not in God's people. They permit people into membership and they expel people from membership. Mm -hmm. They don't do it perfectly. Because we don't have God's view of things, but we nevertheless have a responsibility. Mm. I think that's a responsibility that's passed on to the elders of a church yeah. And, yeah. and ratified by congregations. But we have the responsibility to test whether or not people's professions are genuine. And if so, mm. we admit them into membership, thus declaring, hey, this mm. is, this guy's part of the family. Mm-hmm. And when people show through their behavior that they're not uh, acting as Christians, they get excommunicated. They, which, they get put right. outside, right? And right. Be, because it's it makes uh, it's so important that mm. we know who is in and who is not in, who mm. represents what Jesus' family is, and who doesn't represent who Jesus' family is. Mm. So, yeah, and, so, and then go Hebrews ahead. is well, Hebrews is simply saying, and those people who through lack of perseverance are put out. Um, if they have had the kind of experience that Hebrews six, four and five and six talks about, Mm. uh, it's devastating because it's impossible Mm -hmm. to renew them to repentance. It's almost Mm -hmm. like God saying, look, if you've seen 10 plagues, if you've, uh, walked on dry ground through the Red Sea, Mm. if you ate the bread I gave you from heaven, received the laws I gave you at Sinai, if you do all of that, have all of those extraordinary experiences, and still when the opportunity comes, you decide, yep, I don't want to follow Jesus. Mm. God says, there's not a second, I'm not going to give you two uh, opportunities to reject Jesus. Mm. You've fallen away. Right. I wonder- Which is sobering. I think, yeah, man, and that's like, and I think that the next thing that somebody would ask is, okay, so let's say, you know, all of this as it's echoing Exodus and kind of showing us some of those parallels. Okay, so then what do I do? Like, how do I interact with this on on a, yeah. on a personal level when I look at, because obviously you have the theology behind it, but then a lot of people, they do get up, caught up in the theology, but they, they get caught up in the practicality or the, or how it relates to us as we, uh, as we function as Christians. And this is Absolutely. where things can get tough because we, we look and you say, well, okay, how can I know that my, uh, my aunt, my ontology is, is, 
is a Christian. I'm ontologically a Christian, not phenomenologically yeah. a Christian. Yeah. And I think this is tough. Okay, so this is tough from the Calvinistic perspective too. And I want to hear your thoughts on this. If it, the T, uh, Tulip, the total depravity, which I think is like – the best one, not the best one in that it's like, that it's like good. It's, it's terrible, but it's the one yeah. that I think makes most sense um, that people are totally depraved. To what extent are, do we have the capacity to, to, to make, let's say logical or reasonable judgments about ourselves and our relation to salvation? Okay. Um, That's a great question. And it has to do with indwelling sin, I know, but go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Answer I mean, that question. <laughs> yeah. And who of us hasn't felt, I, th- I think I say this in that Desiring God piece, who of us reads something like this and doesn't feel the sting? Yeah, of, right. If I, if I fall away, it, it says to you and me, uh, you are crucifying the son of God all over again. Yeah. It's impossible to come back to repentance. I mean, that is as, I mean, that's sobering. And if that doesn't sober you, um, that may say something about your ontology. It doesn't sober you. <laughs> yeah, so, man, that's a good um, point. I do think one of the places I go to, and I, I was saying this last week in chapel, I was preaching to the students and I, I started out by saying my first line was, I got saved five or six times before I graduated from high school. Uh, everybody gets saved. Everybody, everybody does. And, and uh, so much of it uh, owed to all kinds of things. And I tried to tease them out. But the thing that was most helpful for me and still is, to be very honest with you, because your point is a good point, how can you really know? Mm. Um, and especially I'm so sobered. I do not want to apostatize mm. every day. I open the newspaper, even online and you see, oh, apostasy just happened again mm. and again mm-hmm. and again. And I, I think one of the things I appeal to is Paul has this little line in Romans eight, uh, eight verse seven, where he says the person without the spirit. Mm. So that's an unbeliever. He doesn't have, in Romans 8, the person with the spirit is a Christian. So I know we've got spirit here in Hebrews 6. It's a different register that Paul's using in uh, Romans 8. In Romans 8, if you got the spirit, you're a Christian. And he says the person without the spirit, an unbeliever, does not submit to God's law and cannot submit to God's law. Mm. And so the point I'm simply making is one of the ways that I found profound help from the New Testament was in the thick line it drew mm-hmm. between believers and unbelievers. So I know, I think we can get too often lost in this. Uh, we play up these categories where, oh my goodness, they look just like believers, but they're not the weed and the mm. weeds one. And we fail to realize there is a sense in which the weeds uh were unable, couldn't, and were unable to mm-hmm. obey God's law, even if on the outside they presented, I think there's an experience of um, that would have testified. They would have said kind of in a quiet moment, you're right, I don't want to follow God. I'm not, I'm not able to. I, I, think, I think there's a realization. And so I, I often can think Christians that are worried about, boy, do I really have a relationship with God, even that desire, even small fruit that's born in their lives, I think that is so clearly antithetical to an unbeliever's 
life. Mm-hmm. Um, the two things that I think of, there's like this saying, I don't know who said it first, but it was just, uh, I'm a, I believe I can't lose my salvation, but I live like I can. And that's a, that's kind of like a cheesy thing, but I'm like, Okay, I, I like I can see that because it, it, there's a certain level of fear and trembling. Work out your faith and fear and trembling that we're yeah, supposed right. to we're supposed to exist in that, and and not in a way that it becomes crippling to the point of I can't do anything at all because I'm just afraid that I'm going to hell all the time. But yeah. there's this there's this level of insignificance to my my perception of what's going on and significance to to the perception god's perception of what's going on what's Mm -hmm. really happening and Mm -hmm. we should live in some constant fear of of that i don't know how else to put it Mm -hmm. that like Mm -hmm. that there is a fear that that Mm -hmm. drives humility that then should drive us then to uh to practice God's commands, to do the things that he tells us mm-hmm. to do because we we want so badly to be a part of the family of God. The other thing that I think of, I don't know if you've seen that Martin Scorsese movie, Silence. I haven't, uh, but I've heard so much about it. I love that movie. And and not because I think it's all the- theologically correct or anything like that, but I think it raises a lot of good questions around suffering, around apostasy, mm-hmm. around um, – and it really does give an accurate representation of what it would be like to be a Christian missionary in the six, 15th, 16th century. And so uh, – but yeah, at the end, I guess I won't ruin it for you. Well, but I, I've heard, I mean, I, yeah, I've heard this, but yeah, but maybe don't spoil it for listeners. <laughs> yeah. So watch the movie, but, but it, it goes deep. I mean, people mm-hmm. can look very, very, the, uh, gosh, what am I trying to say? I know what I'm trying to say, but I'm trying to figure out what words to use. The, the f- desire to look like a Christian Mm-hmm. can go so deep as to somebody being willing to take on an immense amount of suffering for what they believe uh, for them yeah. to be a part of, um, but but then it not be legitimate. At the Even end. though it's not legit, which yeah, is, man. you know, which is one of the kind of apologetic moves we often make, even to prove the veracity of the claims to the resurrection. Well, look at the apostles. They yeah. were willing to die for it. Would people die for <laughs> something they yeah. didn't believe in or something that was a lie? And you're like, suggesting, well, I yeah, maybe. Well, like, you know, the Nazis, man, like, yeah, I don't yeah. know how many of those people... There's stories of these guys who would Nazis who would kill pregnant women. I mean, do terrible, mm. terrible things, and they'd throw up and vomit all over. Like they, they after they mm. would do something like that, mm. they would just, how could I mm. do that? And there's yeah. there's this weird. I mean, people are weird, and the what and belief is a, such a weird concept, and there's so much complexity to it that I think people do die for things that they don't necessarily know why they're dying for it they just are doing mm-hmm. it because mm-hmm. it's a it's a the, the people are functional people want to follow something and they'd mm-hmm. rather follow something than to kind of be what they think is in this weird abyss of nothingness you know so that's mm-hmm. why people follow mm-hmm. totalitarian regimes and and communist states and stuff like that and and terrible philosophies I don't know if it's because they totally completely believe them down to their core or because they have this desire like the Israelites did for a king and they want to follow that king. And I'm not saying, no, I hear you. You know, I hear you. I, I can sometimes think then the Bible in, in its presentation reduces those desires down to 
They want security. Mm-hmm. They ha- are proud. They yeah. are, and it reduces them down to sort of uh, uh, vices we can work with. Yeah, maybe yeah, they didn't true. believe in Nazism, but that what they really wanted is to be accepted. Mm-hmm. And so they mm-hmm. they lived and died because they were their own idol. Well, yes, the Bible has right. all kinds of stuff to talk yes. about. Yeah. And, and I guess my point is, you ask somebody like that, uh, I mean, we are we have the capacity of self-deception to the hundredth degree, but there's something like, yes, are, do you, you'd want to say to somebody like that who's presenting as a Christian simply because he wants the acclaim of being on the inside, yeah. and you think in a frank conversation, with God's help, kind of removing the veil of their self-deception, they would say, you're right, I don't really believe this stuff. Mm. Um, I, I don't, I'm only doing it for X, Y, and Z. And mm. often enough that, uh, lack of real belief then shows itself by, mm. uh, them, the devastating decisions they make with their, their lives, yeah, either right. in their teaching. I think God often, I mean, this is what first John says, they went out from us. So it would be clear yeah. that they were not of us. And oh, so God is like, Hey, I will help you. I'll help <laughs> you. Yeah. I'll send them out. So, you know. And so they'll, well, you hope they'll know, um, but he sometimes just exposes them so that those of us on the outside watching say, oh, okay, that's, that was helpful. I wondered, mm. and now God's made it by their defection, their deconstruction. Mm. He's made it clear what they really were. I'm not, I'm not trying to complicate things more, but I'm really wondering now, like you got me thinking about Jay Gresham Machen. In his book Christianity and Liberalism, yeah, yeah, about hundred yeah. years old now, um, and he kind of writes about how the the words of the 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 gospel, the words that make up the gospel, have all been redefined. Things like love mm-hmm. and and peace and justice and goodness and whatever, and all these things that Christ had had taken and defined uh, on the basis of on his terms, and that you follow Christ in the on on his definitions of of his words, and those had all been throughout the last couple hundred years kind of flipped and redefined, and so there's all the Christianity in in some sense. Uh, isn't at all what Jesus had preached it, mm-hmm, 2000 years mm-hmm. ago. It's actually all, it's all the same words, but they have different meanings now. Is that, is there a, I know that obviously this is a diff, this is another difficult one, but is there, a, is there a, how I, I've really tried to think about this. I live in Madison and you live in Minneapolis. Yeah. So there's a yeah, lot yeah. of this, the, the liberal impact uh the liberal Christian impact in, in these very liberal cities, mm-hmm. uh, politically liberal, but I'm talking about small L liberal, just uh, very open, very postmodern cities. And so where is, you think there's a lot of grace that God gives uh, on that? Or do, or, or do you think that these teachers who are, redefining scripture are gonna part of their judgment is that they've led all of these people astray with them. Like what? Yeah. And I yeah, don't know that's if right. there's a reason, you know? No, no, no. Yeah. And I, I know exactly what you're saying. Like what, what about the person who simply believes that Jesus, uh, well, let's stay, stay away from that one. Who believes uh, righteousness is something that's imparted to you, not something that's imputed to you. And mm-hmm. they go around mm-hmm. with a, an idea of justification that's sacramental, that's Roman Catholic, um, and they just sincerely believe that's what the Bible teaches 
thank you very much. Uh, they're yeah. doing their best. I think that person is in a vastly different category than, I mean, let's take the extreme example of Tetzel in the 16th century selling indulgences and saying, if if yeah. if you just put a <laughs> coin in this coffer, yeah. you'll be able to remit somebody's sins in purgatory. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, a wildly... Uh, uh, grotesque version of merit theology yeah, that, is, or or even I could, you know somebody who goes around teaching, um, let's say something like open theism, and yeah, they're yeah, saying, yeah. look, God doesn't know the future. God's surprised by it, and they domesticate God. The person teaching it and making a case is going to uh, come under a different kind of just justice and judgment than the lady or guy who reads his Bible and thinks, oh, it seems to me like the Bible teaches in Exodus 32, God can change his mind. Maybe he didn't know. Um, It just, I think- Yeah, there's a difference between the follower and the the leader. I mean, and the Bible is so clear about that, right? And (laughs) so what about the person who's redefined love? That's the big one. You know, the gospel is on love. So if it's like love as a a Christ self-sacrificial act- or love as the acceptance of everybody. And so yeah, what, that's right. And I know this comes gets down to orthodoxy. What, what is what is in the bounds of Christianity what is outside of Christianity and um and you know you have the creeds and the confessions to help us on those things that were developed later but uh and I'm not I I'm not you know people might be like okay why is he asking these questions <laughs> like I'm just like but I'm really trying to figure out yeah. Yeah, there's people who are really. I mean, we live in a time that is like the culmination of a lot of this. Absolutely, stuff. people Absolutely. are being led in different directions. And I, I would still answer similarly if someone, yeah, okay, uh, you know, let's say there's uh, some kind of uh, uh, personal experience of uh, same-sex attraction or yeah. uh, some kind of gender dysphoria, and they, in their experience, find themselves saying things and believing things about the Bible. That we, you and me, would say that's not orthodox. That's not true. Mm. Um, but alongside of that, there's a vibrant uh, desire for the word. They are attempting to submit themselves mm. under the word. There's growth in other areas. Their generosity. Mm. They're showing to their friends. I think there's occasions where we just uh, we we won't know, but we have to be patient with somebody who is being sanctified mm. and realize that sanctification happens asymmetrically. Mm. Some areas of their life are going to go forward like a sprint. Other areas are, are going to slowly come along. Yeah, right. And if you present to that person a case that says, hey, the Bible actually contradicts what you're saying about love, if they hear it, and say, I want to follow the Bible. If the Bible does say that, I'll believe it. Just convince me. Mm. I would hold that person in a vastly different category than someone that says, I don't care what the Bible says. Mm. If it disagrees with what I say, we need to change it. <laughs> I think I, I do think we, we fail as churches sometimes in thinking all of the progressive agenda is made by this little cabal of people who know exactly what they're doing and they're mm-hmm. trying to take down Christianity when some of it is it's people who are in desperate need of the truth, stumbling around in the darkness, just regurgitating stupid things they've been taught. Mm. And if they would just meet a patient, loving Christian who could faithfully mm. say, listen, 
you know, let's let me how do you know that asking the kinds of questions that sort of open mm-hmm. up for conversation, we would we would uh, serve people by that posture alongside of one that's sort of combative and sort of circle the mm-hmm. wagons, protect all of the people mm-hmm. on the inside from the wolves on the outside. There are wolves, yeah. but there's also uh, people that Jesus would weep over and say, my goodness, I have mm-hmm. wanted to bring you under my wings. Uh, and, you know, like Jesus, mm-hmm. when he looks over Jerusalem. Um, so it just depends, really. Yeah, it's, if you- it's real important and real difficult to to create somewhat of a chasm between a teacher and their followers because the uh because the bible is clear about the the harsher judgment on the on the false teacher than on the person who had followed and 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 Mm -hmm. that judgment is harsher because you do lead people astray and and it's there's there's this question somebody can uh, walk away from salvation because of, or not, not walk out of it, but walk away from salvation. And that's a dangerous place to be as a teacher. You don't want to be there, but I I've had to really like wrestle with that because it's, there's such a pull in me and maybe other people feel this way too, to look at somebody with a different theology or with what you would consider to be maybe a false theology and to say, well, all of the people who are following them are just heretics. They're all going to hell. Like there's mm-hmm. this poll. I, I want, like, I, I'm not, even, I want to say that because I want there to be clarity and I want, but more so I want my way of interpreting it to be the way to interpret it. I mean, I say I want clarity, but what I really want is to, I, I, I want idolatry. I want to idol, idolize myself and my, my mm. perspectives. And so, yeah, that's like a real tough thing to, to try to, sort out because you don't want to give up what you think is true convictionally. That's right. And also, you know what Chad Packer, he kind of goes at this a little bit in his book on uh, the heritage of Anglican theology is, yeah, evangelicals are hardcore on their convictions, sometimes to a fault, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes we shouldn't be so sure about what we think theologically or, or how we apply something theologically. And that's like, I, yeah, I don't know, man. It's such a difficult thing. Uh, so can you, I, well, let, me, ahead, ju- yeah, let me just, yeah. One more thing I'd say, um, I think you're right. I think there, there are, uh, different kinds of, uh, people who hold to false teaching, different kinds of sinners. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's obvious. And I, I, I'm reminded of what Paul says at the end of first Thessalonians, where he talks about, um, you want to warn people. Some people need to be warned. You warn people who are idle and disruptive. You mm-hmm. encourage the disheartened. You help the weak. Some people need mm-hmm. warning. Some people need encouragement. Some mm-hmm. people need help. And then he says, be patient with everybody. Now, I mm-hmm. think he's talking principally about people who are phenomenologically in the household of faith. He's talking about Christians. But just that uh, ability to diversify our approach to people is so useful. Some people yeah. need to be swatted away with the truth. Other people we need to sit and weep mm-hmm. with and explore, okay, what what's troubling you and your soul? What are you looking for? What are you trying to find? Let me present to you a little key that God gives you a part of the gospel. Mm-hmm. I, I think we want to resist sort of a one-size-fits-all unbelief because mm. it's just not uh, – that's not a sufficient 
uh, way to think about the diversity of human pe- of humans. Yeah, and the diversity of God's church. I mean, the way that it functions. I mean, there's all these different denominations that are doing things differently, and there's all of these people in these denominations who are genuine Christians, but their their theological convictions are are not all the exact same. Like, I think yeah. the whole like one true church thing is is a. I don't think it's meant to say that it's not the Catholic church. It's not the, I think it's a multitude of churches playing out different facets and different pieces of God's character and different things, different ways. And that all kind of work together, but also hold each other accountable. Uh, And so how much time do you have left? Sorry. I I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. We started uh, maybe like 10 more minutes. Is that cool? Yeah. No, whatever you have. Has uh, Has this served you? Yeah, this is okay. this is good. And okay. I think people are really interested because I think it clarified Hebrews 6, especially now being able to look at that in light of the Old Testament, in light of Exodus and saying, oh, here's here's all of these different uh, these different echo. This is echoing what's happening mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in Exodus. And you're seeing and I like that you said you've got the slavery of Israel that now we're coming yeah. out of that, the slavery of our sin. And then you yeah. have the promised land or heaven. Yeah, good. Good, and good, good. What's happening in between there? Um, and then the distinction between what's happening phenomenologically and what's happening ontologically is really helpful for reading through this passage because I think pe- genuine people are like, I don't know how to how to reconcile. Yeah. How do you put this together? And yeah, and that's super helpful. Um, and, 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 I, so, and I think yeah. I think too, at the end of the day, yeah, we want to kind of come to terms with, boy, is this the biggest defeater of Calvinism? That's important, but (laughs) bigger than that, like just the questions you've been asking, how do we know if we're in God's family? How how do we deal with the fact that maybe we hold uh, theology, we hold beliefs that don't align with God's word? Does that mean I'm in or I'm out? Yeah. I think think you've raised... uh, so many of the real existential questions that sort of drive that theological question. It's not always, I want Calvinism or Arminianism to win. It's driven by sort of an experience yeah. of, uh, I want to know that uh, I'm a Christian and I God holds me, or mm-hmm. I want to be able to explain what happened to this mm-hmm. guy I know who seemed to know Jesus, but then he stopped uh, coming to church. How do I explain that? I mean, there's so many real questions that drive um, drive us to this text. Yeah, and at the core of it is 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 a uh, is is a understanding that God, the way that God sees things work sees things working out, is not exactly how we see them working out. And, yeah, the, and there's yeah. a, there's a trust aspect to that. I have to just trust that God's mm. God's seeing things properly, and I'm. Probably not in some aspects. In some ways, I am. Um, yeah. But like to not take myself so seriously, not take mm-hmm. my perspective so seriously, but take God's word as seriously as I possibly can mm-hmm. into my mm-hmm. understanding. Um, okay, I, maybe this last ten minutes because this is something that I'm trying to figure out is is the question. <laughs> this is I'm trying to keep it at ten minutes. Uh, I love the it. kind of I the question it. of indwelling sin as it relates to the T and tulip. In that yeah. after you become a Christian, obviously we still have sin inside of us. Yeah. And uh and so 
how much of that sin is still there and how and how much of that is is corrupting still corrupting our ability to think and mm. and reason through things because i think about calvinists being a lot of them are so sure about their calvinist perspective but i'm like if we actually if you were so sure about it wouldn't you be like unsure about it because <laughs> because of the t you know and so yeah. i just wonder how how does that work out um what would you say to that and 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 an indwelling sin working itself mm-hmm. out in Christians mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. if you don't have an answer, that's fine. No, no. So I, I would say that the total depravity is a description that only works if we're talking about unbelievers. Oh, so okay. there's okay. there is no sense in which a believer is totally depraved. Uh, I so if I'm going to define total depravity, it's just a total inability of an unbeliever to make any headway. Uh, back to relationship with God. He is, uh, he's dead in his sins, if you're going to take the mm. language of Ephesians 2. And so uh, that just isn't true. Once you're made alive, once you're regenerated, you mm. have new life. Now, we can talk about the fact that uh, Christians still sin, but I don't like to use any language, total depravity, depraved, okay. all of that. That's unregenerate language. Uh, when I talk about indwelling sin, hey, honestly, see what you think about this, Andy. Yeah, yeah. I think the reason indwelling sin is such a mystery isn't necessarily a Calvinist Arminian question as much as it's this. I think when Jeremiah, so prophet Jeremiah, mm-hmm. is prophesying and he says, hey, guys, someday God's going to come. He's going to forgive all your sins. And he once once he does that, he's going to write his law on your heart. And when I hear Jeremiah say that, I think, oh, great. In the new thing God will do when he brings his people back from exile, we will obey all the time perfectly. His law Mm. will be written on my heart. I'll be able to do everything I'm supposed to do. Well, (laughs) Jesus comes along, inaugurates the new covenant, and his laws are written on our heart, but we still sin. And we're like, Mm. well, how, how can that be? How can the new covenant that God promised he'd write his law on my heart be fulfilled simultaneously with the fact that I still have this body of sin Romans talks about. And mm. I think that was a interesting thing for early Christians to come to terms with. I think it's why we sometimes have so much trouble reading the Sermon on the Mount. Be mm. perfect for I am perfect. If your mm. righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, I think the Sermon on the Mount is like saying this is the new covenant reality. It's mm. aspirational. This is what people with God's law written on their hearts should, one day will, uh, be able to do, but you should aspire to. And so mm. there's this already not yet. Yes, mm. we have been made new covenant believers, mm-hmm. but we still have the old age in us with indwelling sin. And I think we'll put it off finally when our mm. when we're resurrected with our bodies. So I think that tension in light of the Old Testament's promise is the one that I kind of scratch my head and think, oh, I would have never guessed mm. when the new covenant was fulfilled that I would have Paul come along and write something like he does in Romans 6, mm-hmm. where even though the body of sin, you know, we, we've crucified it, we still have the ability to uh, yield our members as instruments on righteousness. It so, is. It seems like it's a question more of the affections rather than the, the, uh, the, the, your affections rather than 
ability ability yeah and yeah, and yeah. and it's written on your heart and your heart's affections are to be towards Christ and towards God mm-hmm. and towards mm-hmm. and and then towards his commands obviously and and what mm-hmm. and his law and so if you love his law for it to be written mm-hmm. on your heart that's that you love his law and that, that that's a helpful thing the affections are a helpful thing because mm-hmm. in pointing your affections towards Christ it, it doesn't mean that you won't uh, your affections won't get offline sometimes and point towards other things but it means that it'll always get back online and it'll always yeah, get back towards good. Christ and so that's that's always yeah and so the the indwelling sin thing is it was it's good to clarify that because for some odd reason I kept thinking in my head Indwelling sin is equated with total depravity, which is which is mm-hmm. of course not true at all. Because total depravity, it's they're totally people are depra- totally depraved because they don't have the Holy Spirit and they haven't That's been right. saved That's because right. of Christ. And so now you're just dealing with pockets of sin in different areas um, and, and to different degrees. Uh, but now that you have the capacity to kill and you can be perfected. And so you're not totally depraved. You're, par- you're, you're partially sinful in certain ways. And that's a, to- a totally different ball game. I don't know why yeah. you put those two together. Well, I mean, it's tough to try to explain why does a believer still have a lingering sin principle when he's been mm-hmm. made new? Are we schizophrenic? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where is, I, if I have a new spirit, where's the sin coming from? Is yeah. it external? Is it just physical people in Christian history have taught, linked it super closely with the body. I mean, huh. it is a, it is a big question. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think, I, you know, one of the things this we, we, we should stop saying as Christians is quoting the verse from uh, the old Testament. I think it's Isaiah or Jeremiah. Uh, All my righteousness is as filthy rags. And they're like, oh. you know, believers, you know, believers come along and say, yeah, you know, but all my righteousness is as filthy rags as if uh, God hasn't actually put his spirit in them and given them real new abilities. Right. It's, it's, it's almost a blasphemous thing to say it is yeah. because God's made you new. Your righteousness used to be self-righteous, pride, right. energized, but now it's real. You can do righteous, yeah. good deeds that are intrinsically good. And That's it's what, yeah, it's and the reason why it'd be blasphemous is because it's it, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed into you, and so what you do, what proceeds out of you, is what has been put into you through Christ. And so to say that my righteousness is a filthy rags would say that the gospel of Christ and what He did on the cross is a filthy rags, which is like the worst thing you could possibly say. I mean, right? You, it's saying, look, God's regenerated me with His Spirit, and His Spirit energizes me to do good works. But sorry, Spirit, that good work is a filthy rag. Like, yeah. What? Why did Paul say that though? Or is that Paul that said that? What? All my righteousness is filthy rags? No, that's... No, no. Paul says something similar where he counted all of his righteousness as scubala, uh, Mm. as... uh, as uh, dung or or, uh, refuse. But there he's talking about his righteousness according to the law before he had God's spirit given to him before before he became Paul the Christian. He's yeah, talking okay. about his past life in Judaism. Um, but the oh, all my righteousness as filthy rags, that comes from, I think it's Jeremiah. Mm, okay. So it's a different, so that's even the, it's an Old Testament reference, right? 
Isaiah. It's Isaiah 64. Isaiah. I just okay. Goog- I Googled it. I love it that we can do that <laughs> while we're talking. <laughs> yeah, that is it. That's nice. Uh, yeah, because well, back in the day, like I talked to old Christians and they just have everything like up in their head. Oh, I and know. I'm like, I wish I could be like that. And I Me probably too. should, but I have like Google and that's, you know, probably not, not good, <laughs> but it works. Um, okay. So, yeah. I guess we have to wrap things up, but this was really helpful. I mean, we had meant to talk about Israel. Romans. We will. We'll do that again. Yeah. yeah let's do yeah. it again. Yeah, we will. Um, but this was really helpful. And I think this will help a lot of people kind of bring the, that, that mystery of Hebrews six together and start to, when they read through Hebrews, now they can kind of understand some of the structures and, and how it's working right. together and what it's trying to tell us one about the Exodus and two about where we are now between salvation and, and glorification. Mm. And that's, that's, yeah, that's a good. big thing and, and how we can function, uh, and the sobering, thoughts that come from that, that we have to yeah. be, sh- be sure not to apostatize. Um, mm-hmm. Jared. Yeah. I mean, I li- like, we could have talked for three hours. There's like a billion things. I probably, it probably feels like I went all over the place and Dude, I, I, it's no problem. I love it. That's what I do. I love so, it, man. Yeah. I like talking with you. Yeah. Thanks for doing the pod. Um, for those of you who are listening, make sure you like subscribe, share this with, a, with your friends, leave us a five-star rating and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. <laughs>